Hi, I'm Jeb Bakke reporting for Curious City. Chicago is covered in statues, and to an average passerby, these works of art are so frequently encountered, they become a part of the landscape. But monuments don't just pop out of nowhere. It takes a tremendous amount of planning, money, and support to bring a public statue into being. Like the figure cast in bronze on the corner of North Pulaski and West Foster. It's a man, an unassuming figure, with two cigar boxes at his feet. Who is he? Why is he here? And... Like, why is it so small? That's Curious City listener John Cahill. He used to pass by the statue every day on his drive to work. And what struck him every time was... It's the small stature of the statue. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you even said every morning you'd say, good morning, tiny gompers. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> tiny gompers is in fact Samuel Gompers, an average man who had an outsized impact on our working lives. And his statue is in none other than Gompers Park on Chicago's northwest side. So I was wondering, like, is it small on purpose? Like, he's supposed to be an everyman? Or was it paid for by, like, some dark money interest group that wanted to humiliate him? Like, why is it so small? We'll be diving into these questions, finding out what Gompers did to earn an entire park and statue. And we'll hear why some feel his legacy requires reckoning. That's coming up. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I'd never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. At the corner of Foster and Pulaski, Samuel Gomper stands in a dignified pose, hands assertively clasping his lapels, his eyes gazing off into the distance. At his feet sit two boxes of cigars, a nod to his roots as a cigar maker. You had a park named Gompers, and, you know, 99% of the population would not know who is that. We take things for granted. That's Larry Spivak president of the Illinois Labor History Society, a group that helped get the Gomper statue built back in 2007. Larry met with me on a bone-chilling January day, bundled to the brim at the statue in Gompers Park. With a backdrop of whizzing cars at this busy intersection, Larry gave me a history lesson on the park's namesake. Samuel Gompers is a very important person in American history as a founder of the American Federation of Labor, the largest labor federation in this country that eventually became the AFL-CIO. The story of working people in particular is not well represented in many ways. The way history is taught pretty much does not talk about the contribution of working people. To tell passersby who this man is, an engraving on the statue's large marble base reads, from his youth as the first registered member of the Cigar Makers International Union until his death, he dedicated his life to improving labor conditions for the working man and woman. Samuel Gompers grew up in the East End of working-class London, where as a boy, he followed in his father's footsteps and learned the trade of making cigars. These were hard times for the family. 
1863, they immigrated to New York, seeking a better life, when Samuel was just 13. By the next year, he joined his local cigar makers' union. The Industrial Revolution was well underway, and Samuel, like many folks, had no other option but to work in factories with poorly regulated working conditions, making practically unlivable wages. The average worker was on the job 60 hours during a six-day work week. And still, the pay was so low that children like Samuel needed to join the workforce to help support their families. People were feeling the immense physical and psychic harm of these conditions. Gompers, even at a young age, knew something needed to be done. He has seen the uprisings and the ongoing class warfare, if you will, with labor and capital. Those early days for Gompers shaped his belief in unions joining forces to exert as much pressure as possible on company owners. He learned how workers could fight for better wages and a shorter working week. I spoke with labor historian Tim Messer-Cruz, who's a professor of ethnic studies at Bowling Green State University, and he described the atmosphere of Gompers' early cigar-making days. The workers would pool their earnings at the beginning of the day and give money to one of their fellows to not work. And what was he supposed to do? He, they put a chair up on the table and he would read all the newspapers all day long. And he would read radical literature and it became a school. And uh, that was the school that he came out of. Gompers was inspired by these socialist readings to improve the working conditions of his fellow cigar makers. He rose quickly into leadership roles, and at age 36, Gompers was vice president of the Cigar Makers Union. At this point, he was also forming a new national collective, the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions. You can think of this group as a forerunner to the AFL. On May 1st of 1886, that group organized its first major strike in solidarity for the eight-hour workday. In Chicago alone, upwards of 30,000 strikers, lumber workers, machinists, and factory employees, among others, were out protesting. But on the third day of the strike, the Chicago police attacked and killed multiple demonstrators. Upset by the violence, organizers planned a rally the following evening at Haymarket Square on Chicago's near west side. About 2,500 workers attended. Continuing our conversation back at his house, Larry Spivak of the Illinois Labor History Society told me about the importance of that night. In many ways, the protest was less about the eight-hour day and it was more about the rights of workers to organize, the right to freely assemble, the right to have a voice. By 10.30 p.m., the crowd had dwindled to about 200 workers and a near-equal number of police who were armed with repeater rifles. When the crowd was ordered to disperse, someone threw a bomb at the police, killing one and injuring others. The police responded by shooting into the crowd. The Haymarket Affair, which became a watershed event, resulted in the deaths of seven police officers and four workers. The Chicago Tribune referred to the protesters as anarchist rascals, and on May 19th wrote, a speedy indictment of the anarchist rascals probable. A few months later, seven men were found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. Then, 
on the day before their scheduled execution. Samuel Gompers traveled to Springfield, Illinois, to seek clemency from the governor, who, of course, did not agree to it, although two of the sentences were commuted to life in prison. Gompers made a strong effort, but his diplomacy could only go so far. Following the Haymarket affair, labor activists were met with immense hostility, and with martial law declared, police rounded up hundreds of potential dissidents. This uh, anti-labor narrative really did set back the labor movement in many ways. So scare tactics, fear, are always big motivators. It appears that Gompers was indeed motivated. Only a few months after Haymarket, Gompers established the AFL and was elected its president. From this point on, we can see a marked shift in his tactics. He began to find ways for the labor movement to work hand-in-hand with the government. By now, he'd cast aside those socialist readings from his earlier years. And when World War I came along, unlike his fellow champions of labor, Gompers supported U.S. involvement. He was even recorded saying so for the Columbia Graphophone Company. The year was 1918, and Gompers was recorded on wax cylinder. This war is a people's war, labor's war. The final outcome will be determined in the factories, the mills, the shops, the mines, the farms, the industries, and the transportation agencies of the various countries. Showing support for the war was a clear way for Gompers to separate himself from socialist ideologies of the era. People talk about the first Red Scare being post-Haymarket. Here, we can listen to Gompers on the record, pledging loyalty to the country, ensuring his safety from government retribution. America's workers understand the gravity of the situation and the responsibility that devolves upon them. They are loyal to the republic. They have done and are doing their part. Some labor leaders were imprisoned for the denouncement of U.S. involvement in the war. They believed the war would benefit the wealthy but was fought by the working class. However, Gompers' support won him the approval of President Woodrow Wilson. This gave Gompers the opportunity to advocate for labor issues in the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. His recommendations for workers' rights were even incorporated into the Treaty of Versailles. The paradox of one hand supporting a position that uh, may not be in the best interest of workers around the world by uh, supporting World War I ultimately meant that labor was able to help shape some foreign policy with respect to labor's needs. Gomper's legacy is filled with paradoxes like this. Looking back on his career, his efforts were pivotal in growing the labor movement and making slow-moving strides for workers' rights. During his 40 years as AFL president, the average wage for skilled labor increased by 250%. By the time he died, the AFL had expanded from 50,000 members to almost 3 million in 1924. But not everyone was welcome to the table. Gompers limited inclusion to, quote, skilled laborers in craftsmen unions. And the AFL was mostly an association of white men, says historian Messer Cruz. He, more than any other single figure in the American labor movement, was responsible for constructing the Jim Crow structure of American unions right up until he died. 
I mean, he is primarily responsible for the fact that the AFL eventually becomes essentially an all-white movement. Gompers wasn't fighting for the labor rights of unskilled workers, women, nor people of color, not even immigrants like himself. Gompers' wins for labor were intended for a select group. We don't know if any of these issues came up when the idea of the Gomper statue was proposed. It was in 1995 when an individual who lived in the community who was a member, who was in uh, education, a member of one of the professional teaching associations, who was a member of the Illinois Labor History Society, contacted us and suggested that there be a statue. And ILHS took it up and sent a letter to the city, and eventually it gained some steam. And other people got involved, and there was support. So it was, well, it was a 12-year process. So, more than 80 years after his death, Gomper's statue was finally unveiled. The timing was fortuitous for one young sculptor who was just beginning a new career as an artist. After a career in social work, sculpting a labor leader seemed like a perfect fit. Though, it turned out to be a bit more complicated. Plus, she knows the answer to our listeners' question about the height of tiny gompers. That's coming up next. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I'd never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we are going to unveil the statue itself. So ladies and gentlemen, let us take a look at America's first and foremost statesman of labor, Samuel Gompers. It was a bright and festive Labor Day for the unveiling at Gompers Park in September 2007. Among the first to lay eyes on the statue were local neighbors, the scouts, and a myriad of union members. Some even took the mic to celebrate Gomper's achievements. It was because of him that my grandfather was a union member, my uncle was a union member, my father was a union member, my brother was a union member, and I am still a union member of Local 130. He was a gentleman who did not have a formal education. He often said the factory was my Harvard or Yale. This is the man who gave us the eight-hour day. This is the man who sent our children to school. And I think that's why this is also as much an Independence Day as a Labor Day. Thank you very much. Also in the crowd that day was the artist who designed this bronzed version of Gompers. I'm Susan Clenard, and I'm a professional sculptor. The Gompers statue was one of Clenard's first sculpting commissions. Up till that point, she had been a social worker, providing support for children in the foster care system. But the working conditions were challenging, and she was feeling burnt out. Like it was very painful and just draining, just sucking of my energy constantly. And I was being overworked, very much underpaid, which you don't think about when you're doing the work because it's so important. But, you know, (laughs) when you can't even get an apartment in Chicago when you're working for the people of Chicago, (laughs) you know, there's there's no balance. So Clenard thought to herself... Why can't I give back in meaningful ways, but in a way that fills me back up, right? 
On her off hours, Clonard began to pour herself into sculpture. Her intention? To meld her social advocacy work with her art. And it was not that long after, probably a few years after, when I had really dedicated myself full-time to sculpture and I started teaching sculpture, where this really wonderful opportunity came to sculpt Samuel Gumpers. A statue of the labor leader felt like a great overlap with Clonard's passions especially considering Gomper's work to bring about and protect child labor laws. Clonard was commissioned to build a life-size statue of the man with two boxes of cigars at his feet. That's right. The statue is a one-to-one depiction of the man. He was about five foot five, average for a man at the time. So the question of... Like, why is it so small? Seems to be a matter of perspective. I mean, after all, so many statues are larger than life. And perhaps we come to expect that. A life-sized Gompers may seem smaller in comparison to war generals or presidents, but perhaps there's artistic significance in that. I wish I could tell you, but I'm pretty sure it had something to do with the finances. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, they wanted it tall enough where you could look up, right? So I was like, okay, then you need to, you know, if you're doing one-to-one, then clearly we're going to have to invest in a larger granite base Clonard and I both agreed it's far more fun to think that there's some kind of greater artistic vision behind it. Either way, on September 3rd, 2007, Samuel Gompers in bronze was unveiled. It was one of the best unveilings I've ever been to because the amount of the different various labor unions that were there representing and I believe donating their time to install the piece, but also the celebratory pride of so many unions there on the unveiling day was, like, palpable. It was awesome. And Clonard held on to that feeling for six years. That's when she posted a picture of the statue on Facebook for Labor Day. Someone saw it and reached out, telling her about Gomper's anti-immigration prejudice, especially against Asians. Again, historian Messer Cruz. I mean, he even wrote a book about it, Meat versus Rice, And he pretty much laid out in very clear rhetoric the way that Chinese immigrants were culturally and biologically deficient. That was a punch in the gut. And it's slightly ironic, too, because in the last 15 years, I've worked with the refugee and immigrant community. And a lot of my work is about border crossing and, you know, our shared humanity. And so that was powerful because I didn't know that about Gompers. I should have known that about Gompers. The news about Gomper's mixed legacy changed the very way Clenard thought about her work going forward. I don't desire to get another commission of a statue. Never. It's, that is not at all anywhere on my radar. Susan is not alone. Culturally, we're rethinking who we build statues to and why. And what do we do with those that spark both protest and reverence? Like Chicago's Christopher Columbus Monument, now in storage. One approach is the Chicago Monuments Project, initiated in 2020 to take a comprehensive look at public art in Chicago. I met with co-chair of the project, Bonnie McDonald, and she described how the committee took stock of Chicago's public art landscape. What narratives are in public space and which are missing in public space? Who is not represented, i.e. many of those monuments are are about men (laughs) and So we're missing, you know, half of the population, women, the LGBTQ community, people of color, the labor movement, which is the subject of this conversation. So it's also about what stories are we telling in public space and what's missing? 
In the spring of 2022, the committee released the report determining which pieces warranted attention or action. Samuel Gomper's statue was not included in their list of problematic monuments, but his story is emblematic of the challenges the commission has faced. The imperfect nature of human beings, that, that human beings are inherently human. And I, I would say that we heard that loud and clear from the public about the problematic nature of monumentalizing people because of their complex nature. Historian Messer Cruz is among those who take issue with the commission's work. In an op-ed that he wrote for the Chicago Tribune, he contended that tearing down statues isn't the best first option when dealing with problematic historical figures. I think we may have missed an opportunity to have that larger conversation, a deeper conversation about what these things really meant at the time they went up and how our attitudes around them have changed in numerous ways since that time. But how to deal with a statue like Gompers that went up just 16 years ago? I mean, maybe more statues is the, is the answer, right? Maybe, maybe instead of fewer, we need more. Maybe we need a, a statue to a Philip Randolph, someone who opposed Gomper's Jim Crow policies and was actively trying to change them and, and was the first labor leader of color to become a member of the AFL-CIO executive board after a lifetime of struggle. What's the answer? More statues or fewer? Different people recognized or different ways of recognizing them? These are the questions we're asking as city leaders, artists, and caring members of the community. Meanwhile, on Chicago's northwest side corner, one can remember the ways that Samuel Gompers improved our working lives and the ways he caused harm to those he ignored or ostracized. As traffic whizzes by and families head to the park to play, wondering, who is that proud man in bronze with two cigar boxes at his feet? Not knowing the complicated answer. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and is produced by Jason Mark and Joe Dassault. Adriana Cardona-McGeegod is Curious City's reporter. Maggie Sivet is the digital and engagement producer. Marie Mendoza is WBEZ's podcast fellow, and Johanna Zorn is the show's editor. I'm Jeb Baki. Thanks for listening. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.